Will you please welcome Dr. Don Opitz for us tonight? And at 12.50 today, so everyone in the first, sophomores, juniors, and seniors don't know this, but everyone in the first year experience class read uh, Dr. Opitz's book, Learning for the Love of God. And at 12.50 today in Schrader Lecture Hall, the first, several of the first year experience classes will be gathering there uh, to hear from Dr. Opitz. You're more, anyone's more than welcome to attend that today at 12.50. Well, let's stand and uh, begin our time of worship and prayer. And as we go to prayer today, I want to just make you aware of one need. Uh, another student's father uh, passed away today, uh, or ex- uh, yesterday, I believe it was. Um, so that's the second time in just a couple of weeks that one of your fellow students' uh, father has passed away. So we want to keep that family in prayer. And so let us begin in a time of prayer, uh, silent prayer, lifting our cares and concerns to the Lord, knowing that he hears the prayers of our hearts. Father, as we gather as a community to worship you, we are reminded of our, our friend, fellow student, um, and his family who are grieving today. And we are reminded of a student who lost his father two weeks ago and his family who is grieving. And so we pray for all of those uh, that are in this room, that are in the midst of grief and sorrow and walk, walking through the darkest valley, the shadow of death. But we are also grateful that you promised to be with them. So we pray your presence in their lives. May they sense it and experience it in real and powerful ways. And for all needs that were lifted up in this moment of silence, we give them to you and trust them to your care. We pray for your healing waters to flow. Revive, renew, refresh us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen and amen. Can we encourage this new chapel team today that we're going to support them as they lead us? Well, amen. Wow. I love that first number especially. That was a little like... Los, Los Lonely Boys Touched by the Spirit a little bit. I really like that. That was nice. So thank you. Thank you for all those. That was just gorgeous. And it's, I'm delighted to be here. And I'm looking for whoever the best uh, tree guide is for after this. Because I saw the European purple beach out here. And that tree has, that's just spectacular. And so I'm looking for a little tour after this. And I hope to get to meet some of you in a, you know, a dialogue right after lunch, so I'm really looking forward to that, but thanks for having me here today. Um, Delighted to be here. And I've got this strange, you know, title here today. It sounds like I'm going to try to do way too much to talk about callings and love and, you know, developing a Christian mind, a little Christian perspective on learning, but I'll do my best. And I want to start out with a little story about this character. Do you guys, does anyone recognize who this is? It's got a little ghostliness to it because um, Jacques Cousteau passed away a couple years ago. And Jacques Cousteau was a childhood idol of mine. Let me tell you about it. Jacques Cousteau was a, um, a famous French oceanographer. And when I was a kid, this was in the days when you used to actually have to get up and walk across the room to turn a TV on, you know, and you'd actually change the channels by turning a dial. It was weird. I don't know how we ever did it. But... Um, it used to be that um, the undersea world of Jean Cousteau would come on as what we used to call a special. It was on once a year, and then for a little while it was on twice a year in the high times of Jean Cousteau. And when I saw that it was coming up in a couple weeks, I went to, um, I went to my parents and I was excited. I love Jean Cousteau. I said, Mom, Dad, the undersea world of Jean Cousteau is going to be on Friday night. And it was, I was like eight 
And I remember that I had to ask permission to kind of own the TV and also to stay up late. So I don't know whether it was on from 9 till 10 or whether 8 till 9 was late back then. I don't know. Mom did, sure, sure. So on that night, I am nose to the TV, defending that space, transfixed. Because Jacques Cousteau, and see, my, my dad was a science teacher and my mom was phys ed. And it kind of felt like as a kid, this was the best of both worlds because he's doing science, but it's sporty science, right? And it's cool. I love water. And you guys are here a quarter of a mile from the ocean. It's gorgeous. But uh, I love water. I love boats. And I thought, what, what a fabulous job this is that Jacques Cousteau has. And at one of those commercial breaks, curse those commercials, at one of those breaks, I looked to my dad and I said, Dad. What job is this that Jacques Cousteau does? And my dad said, he's an oceanographer. And I said, Dad, would you write that down for me? <laughs> and so my dad, with an old stubby pencil on a little piece of paper, he wrote the word oceanographer. See, now, I, was, um, I had an older sister, and I had seen Sharon go through the teen years, and I knew it was going to get bumpy if Sharon was any kind of sign. And so I knew, man, what if I get to be a teenager when oceanographer really matters? And what if I forget what I'm supposed to do with my life? But now I had it right recorded on a little piece of paper. And, um, and so then I was worried, what do I do with the sacred text? Oceanographer. <laughs> you know, what... I'm eight. That's a long time until, you know, until I'm old enough to really care about this. But it sure felt good to know what I'm supposed to do with my life. So here's another thing that happens to eight-year-olds. I don't know if this has changed, too, because now when, um, when you buy wallets, they're like in a bin or they're hanging. It used to be in the olden days that wallets came in boxes that had like a clear cellophane lid on it. So when you open it up, you sniff the leather, you know, and, and they were just like that. And why this hat? We used to celebrate birthdays with our elderly two neighbor couples, Blanche and Walt and Tony and Elaine. I kid you not. And so I got a wallet for my eighth birthday from, I think, from Blanche and Walt. And I don't know why, because it's going to be years until I actually have any... I actually have folding money today, which is unusual. It's, you know, until I'm going to have a license that I need a, a wallet for. So I thought, that, I thought, wait a second. When I need a wallet, teen years, maybe I've endured some of the bumpiness. I pull out the wallet to put my driver's license in. I discover Ocean. I'm back on the path. I thought, brilliant plan. So I put Oceanographer in the wallet, put it away. And then where do you keep something that you don't want to, something that's sacred, something valuable, where do you put it? Where's it go? Yeah, in the back of the underwear drawer, right? <laughs> and I've got to tell you guys, it's not like every burglar doesn't know this. That's actually the first place they look. They go right into the bedroom, throw out the underwear to find your valuables. So they know that, but I had it there waiting for me. Okay, so a couple years ago, I had... Um, with another colleague, we had put together this grant proposal, and we got a bunch of money for Geneva College to explore this idea of calling and callings and vocation. This is at Little Geneva College, and we're having a great time with it. But I'm home having dinner with my parents, and my parents aren't Christians, 
And I'm trying to explain to them this new part of my job about calling and vocation. So I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll tell the Jacques Cousteau story. I thought that, you know, that will kind of explain to them this idea of calling a little bit. And we can talk about that. And they'll say, oh, yeah, I remember that. So we're at dinner in our little kitchen. And I tell the Jacques Cousteau story and about dad writing that on a piece of paper. And my parents look at me like this and they say, we don't believe you. Because I don't tease my parents. I guess they thought I was making this up. So I pushed away from the table in a faux huff. You know, like I was, what, really? And so I walked down there. We've got little basement steps by our kitchen table. I walked down there. There's a metal cabinet that we keep old games and stuff. And I rattled the doors. And I found an old piece of acid-faded paper and a really dull pencil. And I wrote the word oceanographer <laughs> on the piece of paper to prove to my parents that I wasn't a liar, right? And so I showed that to them. They were like, oh, we're sorry. Now, i got to tell you the truth. As I told my parents that it was a true story, but that at that point I was just um, I was fabricating the evidence. But, uh, <laughs> hey, now, I don't, how many of you are... Um, one call wonders. You knew when you were eight what you were going to be when you grew up, and you have not changed track. How many of you are out there? Okay, I hate you. Hate, hate. Are there, are there a few others? Hate, okay, no. Right, for the rest of us, the, the kind of the tortured wanderers, that's frustrating. But I know there are people like that. They know I'm going to be a doctor when I grow up, and then they're great in biology, and then they get great you know, med scores, and then they go, and they're a doctor, and then they're serving the poor. They're doing great things, and it's like all their life, a clear path. For most of us, we've been beaten. And I'm not actually an oceanographer, by the way. Uh, <laughs> nor have I been a dozen of the other things that I thought would uh, simplify my life and make it clear and um, simple and wonderful. Um, Paula, Paula Poundstone, she's a comedian. She says this, you know why adults are always asking kids what they want to be when they grow up? They're looking for ideas, right? <laughs> so yeah, it's, uh, and so many of you are still in that, um, you're still in that quest. You're in the hunt. And I've got bad news for you. You may change your mind several times still. The Lord may bump you in one direction or another. You may have a, take on a kind of a professional track that changes into adulthood several times. Perfectly fine. Perfectly fine. I want to tell you, too, that the Bible itself isn't as tight and crystal clear about calling. I'll say this. The Bible is about calling from the first page to the last. And if we had time, if this was a theology course and we could divvy up some chapters and assignments, we could take a look at some of the multiple calls. You know, the, the call that brings the creation, you know, creation itself is a fiat creation. The Lord calls it into being right from the very start. It's call that gives identity and purpose to humanity who are created Imago Dei. It's the call to culture, what we're to be about as human beings, the fruit of our voices and of our artistic labors and our scientific labors and our agricultural labors, all this called 
to bring culture that honors and glorifies the Lord into existence. There's the call of wisdom. There's the call to covenant obedience and hope. There's the call of the prophets to covenant faithfulness. There's the call of Jesus to come follow. The call of the Holy Spirit that draws sinners to the gospel. There's the great commissionary call to go to the four corners. The call of redemptive heroes and marginal saints. It's called beginning to end. God is calling all the time. He loves to call. And if he, isn't, if he isn't calling, he's whispering. And if he isn't whispering, he's thundering. And if, and if it isn't voki day, the voice of the Lord, it's in the word. And if not in the word, then in person. And when not in person, by the spirit, the God of the Bible is a regular chatterbox. Jesus is, in fact, the word of God. God's call embodied. Now, fully half of Christian spirituality is attending to the Word. And the other half is responding. And we could develop that, we could explore that a little bit more. Here's the way that, for students that I work with, I've tried to capture in kind of a, a little pictural graphic this, um, this posy of faithfulness. I think that, given that there's so much in the Bible about calling, in our culture we think it's all about getting your vocation, getting your job straight. I think if we were clear about how the Bible unfolds, we'd have a much richer sense of multifaceted Christian faithfulness, that most of the calls of the Lord aren't particular for me and then for you and different for you. Most of them are calls that we share together. And as we begin to discern the calls of the Lord together, then those things that are particular to you and I find their place. But I think it works like this, that the the call that goes out is for people to be rooted and anchored in Christ, the call to the gospel to find our forgiveness in him, our satisfaction in him, our identity in him. And that's a call, God willing, by his spirit, that in the preaching of the word is a kind of an echo call. And that's a call that's going out right now. To you to be rooted in Christ Jesus. And for those who are rooted in Christ Jesus, we share this in common. Something is to be happening in all of us. Here I've just captured it with the, um, with the New Testament big three. Faith, hope, and love. But here's what it is. Rooted in Christ, Christ-likeness is to begin to take shape. This is a calling to every Christian. That faith and hope and love, that the fruit of the Spirit, that the characteristics of the Beatitude, done in different ways, but that this begins to come to fruition in us. A transformation of our hopes and dreams, of our character, our disposition. Christ-likeness in us. Now, I've got the petals of the posy, and we could add, if we, again, if we had time and workshoppiness, we could work this out a little bit. So that one, as a faithful child, I was born a son to parents. I've mentioned my parents already. And get this. One of the calls of my life, faithful sonship. And that is, um, that's true for half of you, and for the other half, faithful daughtership, right? And, um, and it doesn't matter if my parents have passed on, if they weren't great parents to me, if they were divorced or neglectful, 
somehow, even if they were abusive, this still pertains. I am called to honor my my father and my mother. It's a fundamental call in my life. It's not easy. But together we discern what that means. Now, I wasn't born married to sweet Christine, because that would be weird. But um, at the point when I made that covenant covenant commitment to Christine, here's another call in my faithful spouse. To be a faithful husband to my wife is one of the fundamental callings of my life. And I love figuring that one out. It's nice when you find other, you know, other wonderful couples that help you and imagine what that means and what that looks like. And that's a healthy marriage then. Fabulous. That's one of the calls that's, uh, that I've taken into my life. And hey, I'm called too. My wife had, um, had previously had daughters, so I've got two stepdaughters. And there's not a chapter in the Bible about step-parenting. But I'm called to discern this. One of the calls of my life, what it means to be a faithful stepdad to my stepdaughters. It's one of the calls of my life. It's one of the things that I know that I honor the Lord Jesus by thinking about it, applying biblical wisdom as best I can, asking for prayer and support as I live that out. I honor the Lord Jesus as I try to think about what it means to be a faithful citizen, a faithful steward, a faithful church member, a faithful employee. Multifaceted faithfulness, friends. And here's the good news for you. Here's the good news. You, um, you will not be perfect at all that stuff. You won't be perfect at any particular petal of it, and you don't have to be. The Lord Jesus is our perfection. He's the one who's fulfilled these calls on our behalf. Here's what we get to do. Not have to. We get to pursue faithfulness in a whole array of life activities. And in so doing, we worship and honor the Lord. And so here's the petal of the flower that I want to bend my attention on right now. For first years, it's why Derek and I wrote that little book that you're reading. This one on being a faithful student, that's a concern of ours. Because um, for both Derek and I, we loved the college years, and we both worked in campus ministry, and um, we wanted other students to love the college years as much as we did, but we um, wanted this too. Not just to love it, not just through the good timing and the, you know, the um, fooling around and stuff, but to love what college is for. And to begin to discern this as calling, that this opportunity that you've got is a special calling. It's an opportunity for you to honor the Lord Jesus with your studies. With what you're doing here. And I know that um, that that's a hard call. But that's why we were writing the book. We were convinced that Too many students didn't really either love college, or if they loved it, they loved it for the wrong reasons. And we wanted to invite students into this adventure, honoring God academically. And so let me say a few things about this. Um, The call to mind love is anchored, it's anchored in what Scott McKnight has called the Jesus Creed. And you all know this when when the scribes are pressing Jesus, hey, what do you say the, you know, the law is all about? And Jesus says, I'll tell you. 
Here's my summary, that you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself. And so here, and you can, uh, Bible scholars, you can have some fun with this too, to take a look at what it actually says in Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19 where Jesus borrows those pieces from and how he amplifies it actually in some slightly different ways where this is recorded in all three of the synoptics in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The uh, list is slightly different, and it's curious whether Jesus says this in different ways at different times. And, but here's the, uh, that you're to love the, because here's Jesus' picture of what it means to be created as a human being. Here's what you were made for, to be love court. That love is to flow out of you, to orient your whole being, whatever your gifts and talents and whatever you do with your life, it's this at core, you were made to be a conduit of love. Of God's love that flows into us and through us and back to the, with all of our heart. I think what he's saying is, with everything you got, with every aspect of your being and everything that you do, that you seek to raise that up as a worship of the Lord, as a love of the Lord, and that it pours out as love of neighbor. That's Jesus' picture of what it means to be a human being. And as part of this, we see that Loving the Lord our God is also a, a love with the mind. Love is at the very heart of our Christian identity. Let me tell just a quick story, and this is a, a strange one to do in a chapel setting. This is a, a, about a guy named D.H. Lawrence. Famous author, made most famous by um, a book that was on the band list for um, a long, long time, Lady Chatterley's Lover. And you can see that I've spray-painted a little bikini onto um, Lady Chatterley's little behind there to make it appropriate for the chapel setting, you know, I thought. Um, so this is a very, it's a very uh, erotic, kind of sensual book that D.H. Lawrence was most famous for. And D.H. Lawrence also wrote a book about Jesus that at one point was called The Cock Crowed and then later title changed to The Man Who Died. And I've spray-painted heresy on there, so I'm not recommending D.H. Lawrence's theology to anyone in the room. But here's the one I did want to talk about, this, uh, this other book, Kangaroo. And in this one, D.H. Lawrence is... This one is a, um, a thinly-veiled autobiography. It's about his own life, in a way, and about his own quest. And his lead character in this novel, I had a little Australia thing going for us. So I was reading all the novels on Australia I could find. This was a, 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 one of, a heartbreaking favorite. Lead character is a guy named Lovett. And I can't remember his first name, so we'll say it's Lyle. Lyle Lovett. And that's only funny to three people who know that Lyle Lovett is a country western singer. Thank you, by the way. Um, okay, so Lovett in this story is, um, is an interesting character. This is the D.H. Lawrence persona, I think. And Lovett, um, Lovett lives in the time of the rise of the brown shirts, Nazi Germany. And he's a newspaper reporter. He's a person of, of uh, intellect and, wit and ability and position. And he could have made a difference. He could have contended. He could have used his power and his paper and his pen to make a difference at the rise of the brown shirts. But love it backpedals. And at the same time as we see him back, and you, you're cheering for him as a character, you want him to lean in. You want love it to live up to his name and actually be able to love something, be committed to something, do something. And then we discover it's the same in his relationship with his wife. 
His wife loves him, and she also needs him, but he recoils from the need. He backpedals away from her. And he backpedals away from responsibility and away from love, and he backpedals across Europe, and he ends up down in the boot, right at the time of the rise of Mussolini. Again, he's connected, I think, if I recall right, with a newspaper. He can make a difference. He contend with the, can contend with the fascists. And he backpedals onto a boat, and he ends up in Australia, and eventually in the outback, time and time again, Lovett has this opportunity to actually love something. And he can't do it. He knows he should, but he doesn't care about anything. He can't commit to anything. And Lovett dies forgotten and forsaken in the outback, and it's the saddest novel I've ever read. And it's especially sad when you realize that it's D.H. Lawrence's story of his inability to find love, to find hope, to find meaning. Real meaning is always connected to love. It's always connected to commitment. So, my picture, again, I've got you the, the, you know, the little posy picture, this idea of being love, you know, a cord in love to bring out that kind of growth, to be able to live with these kind of commitments, discerning multifaceted faithfulness. That's the Christian life. It's rich. It's exciting. You're never done with it. You get to be prepared here and now for the living out of that kind of rich, robust, multifaceted faithfulness. But especially if you take this particular pedal seriously, the call to learn to love the Lord your God with your mind. Because that's why you're here. That's what all this is designed for, a kind of a nurturing of that kind of, that kind of readiness. Paul is convinced that the gospel changes everything. And it ought to change your mind. And I think you know these passages, Paul's passion here. If we had to, we could do these as Bible study on each one of these. Romans 12, the first verse is talking about this. Hey, pour, pour yourself out. Let that love pour out of you. Pour yourself out as a living sacrifice. That's your spiritual act of worship. Don't be mistaken. Worship isn't completed when you're done with a singing or a prayer or a benediction. That's the launch to a life that's poured out. Pour yourself out. And then it says, don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul's got that sense. Hey, we've got some work to do. Got some thinking to do. A little mind renewal. Christian college is at their best. That's what we're about. Trying to frame a Christian mind. This 1 Corinthians 12, 16. Now, some don't have this. Paul is arguing. But those who are in Christ, we have the mind of Christ. That should be more obvious than it is. Or in 2 Corinthians, you know, we demolish every argument and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. That sounds like a little bit of work. Sounds like some deep thinking. That sounds like I was teaching a 
teaching, I was subbing for another prof. I was in a theology course the other day, and, and hey, I'm just a sub. I'm there for one day, you know. And so I get to talk about what I want to. And I said to them, hey, you know, how's the course going so far? Oh, they're overwhelmed. It's hard. And I said, hey, before you had this theology course, how many... And I had them do a little hidden finger vote. I said, how many books of theology had you ever read before you took a theology course? And we could do the same thing here. And the number was zero, zero you know, of the 40 students in there, mostly zeros and a few ones. I said, oh, let's change it up a little. How about any book that was designed to actually help you think a little bit more deeply about or to, to grow in your faith? Let's take a look at what that looks like. You know, your preparation for thinking seriously about what it means to be a Christian. So we did the little kind of finger vote. Still, a dozen or more, zero, you know, some more ones, nothing more than two. I thought, oh, my goodness, I was just, I, I, was, I didn't want to weep right there in class. That would be embarrassing. But I was heartbroken. If we're earnest about this stuff, if these calls are true... And it begins with a kind of invested knowledge of the Lord. That ought to be part of our fundamental discipleship, the work that we do together. Seeking to take every thought captive. And if this is true, I mean, Paul just wrote it. If the Holy Spirit is in this and this is true, that Jesus Christ himself in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is that source of unity. He's the source of all wisdom and knowledge. The fount of understanding. And so the things that we know and learn to discover their origin in him, that's the integration of faith and learning, friends. And that's our challenge. That all of our learning would be rooted in him and that we'd be able to lift it up in a way that honors and glorifies him. You know that Johann Sebastian Bach would... Sign, now actually not all of his works, but the majority of them he would sign SDG. Solidea Gloria. To the glory of God, because he was making an offering. He was pouring out his life, his gifts and his abilities, in living worship to lift up to the Lord. And I got to say, friends, I think we ought to be able to sign our own papers our own exams, humbly as we can with a little SDG, Lord, I learn here for the sake of your honor and your glory. Thank you for this gift. Thank you for this high calling. If you are here, one of your calls is to be a faithful student. There are other calls as well, I've said. And some will echo beyond the college years for the rest of your life. But these calls we all share. To be rooted in Christ. To become like Christ. And to connect all of our learning and knowledge to the Lord of learning. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are gathered. We're thankful. We're thankful for this place for the friends that are around us, for this kind of word that goes out. this um, And we've prayed that it would be your word. And I'm praying it still. And I'm praying that, um, that the hearers of this word would make it even better by caring and by imagining and by following up with conversation with professors and beginning to respond in some way to this call to... Um,
to worship you with our lives, to develop a spirituality of study, to take learning as a great opportunity to exalt you. We want to honor you with these college years, with each class, with every book that we read, and every great conversation that we have. We pray that in the midst of that, that the Lord of learning would be honored. To that one, the one and only Lord Jesus, to him be all the glory and honor and praise now and forever. Amen. Have a great weekend. Go in peace to love God and serve others. You are dismissed.